This morning, if you're new with us, my name is David Cassidy. I'm the lead pastor here at Spanish River Church, and it's a great joy to open God's Word with you today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 3. So if you have a print version of the Scriptures, I'd encourage you to open and follow along. If you have an app on your phone or, or uh, some other device, open that up, follow along as well. We are this year in a series where we're spending time in Matthew's gospel to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear his word to us, hear his preaching, hear his teaching, see his example, see the signs and wonders and learn of them. And then as he summons people to be his disciples to rise and follow him, the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all sin. But that does not mean that salvation is then this kind of membership card that you have in a society that doesn't really change much about our lives here and now. It's only fire insurance for the end. No, no, no. When Christ redeems us and makes us his own people, he does cleanse us from all sin. And he forgives us utterly and completely and imputes to us his perfect righteousness. But he also summons us to be his disciples. And the apostles cared deeply, not only that we knew Christ and followed Christ, but that Christ's own life, which is given to us in the gospel, is formed in us. So Paul wrote to the Romans, for instance, that he said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be transformed. And so this year, we're particularly going to be spending time on how Christ's life is formed within us so that Christ's life can be seen through us. Now, it's never perfect in this life. That only happens at the very end when we are glorified and we long for that day or when Christ returns and all things are made new and we can't wait. But that does not mean that we postpone the work of grace in our hearts that transforms and changes us. And so when we see the events, these great events in Jesus' life, we are looking at how his work can transform us. It isn't simply an example, but indeed, he comes to live within us. If Christ were simply set before us as an example to follow, we would give up in despair. But Christ does not simply live as our example. Christ lives in us, his life in us. Paul said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so to be a Christian means that I've put my trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and that Christ has come to live in me and change me from the inside out so that my attitudes, my thoughts, my actions, everything begins to be reshaped to be in conformity with him. I do think a lot of people imagine that when Jesus comes to live within them, what he's going to do is dust them. He kind of comes into their, the house of their heart and he does some dusting. That we're, we're really not all that big a mess. And that he'll come in and just straighten a few things up. He might, he might adjust a chair and move the couch to a different place. 
But suddenly, what Jesus begins to do is go all Chip and JoJo on you. He announces Demo Day. And he begins to tear down walls and rip out sinks and destroy windows. And he's having fun doing it. And you're going, Lord, what are you doing to my heart? What are you doing to my life? And he says, I thought you wanted me to make you new. But I didn't think I was that bad. Oh, you're bad. You're bad, Jesus. I'm going, you see, by my spirit and by my word, to transform you so that your life looks like my life. Come follow me. Would you say that with me? Come follow me. And so we follow him as disciples. When we open up the Gospels, we come to this place today, Matthew chapter 3, and the baptism of Jesus, the beginning of his public ministry. And I want to invite you to read along with me in Matthew chapter 3. I'm going to begin in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. We looked last week at John the Baptist and his ministry summoning Israel to a place of repentance, preparing the way for Jesus' arrival. That's in Judea. Jesus comes from Galilee, way up in the north. Now he comes here, and he's come to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and to you? Come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now. Thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. Mark's gospel says they were rent, they were torn. It's a word that was used for fabric being split. There's a, a prayer in Isaiah where, where the prophet prays, Lord, oh, that you would rend or rip open the heavens and come down. That prayer from Isaiah, prayed 700 years before that, that event, is now answered. The heavens are ripped open and the Lord comes down. The heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is the gospel of the Lord. Won't you pray with me? Lord, we pray that the same spirit who descended from that split open heaven and rested on Christ, who inspired Matthew to write these words, who raised the son of God from the dead, would rest upon us now and open our hearts to the glory and the majesty, open our eyes to the beauty and the believability of who Jesus is. And we pray this in his matchless and mighty name. Amen. One of the comments that I have heard over the last decade or so with regard to evangelical church life in general is that the evangelical church in America is six miles wide but about two inches deep. And that under a blazing sun, under the heat, it would quickly evaporate. Well, the heat has sure been on. And there are places where evaporation is occurring. One of the burdens that pastors carry is that the church should be both deep and wide. That there should be some depth, the life of Christ within us as we learn to follow him. So that we are becoming resilient disciples of Christ. 
And when we see him in his beauty and in his majesty, Paul says when we see him, we are changed to be like him. And so the church has marked a season of seeing across the world, and it's called epiphany. That's a word, of course, that means something is being manifested. You're seeing something. That's a season the church is in right now, a season of seeing. And there are three passages which the the church has always read during that season of seeing, of having the Spirit open our eyes to the truth about who Jesus is. The first one is the Magi. And the Magi, of course, are Persians. They're, they're not Jews, but they, they come. They're the first of the Gentiles who show up. And they, see who, they know who he is before anybody else does. The Gentiles see him. They say, we've come to worship him, this king that's born. And so they come and they, they bring their gold and their frankincense and myrrh. You see, there was nothing about what was going on there in the manger at Bethlehem. The Son of God laid in the urine and feces-stained straw of that manger, those aromas filling the air, that would have suggested to you that the king of the cosmos and the savior of the world was before you. But the magi saw something. They saw something. Simeon, as Jesus is brought into the temple, saw the Messiah that had been promised to him. They saw something. John chapter 2 is also read about the wedding of Cana where it says that Jesus turned water into wine. There have been Christians been trying to change it back for 2,000 years, but that's a different sermon. (laughs) Jesus turned water into wine. One commentator wrote, the water saw its maker and blushed. That's a, yeah, wasn't that lovely? That was a nice one, wasn't it? It's a lovely thought. The water became wine. And listen, it says, the disciples saw his glory and believed. So the Gentiles see him, and his disciples see him. But the third passage is this one, where he's revealed to Israel. Israel begins to see him. This is where, at his baptism, John points to him, and the Spirit anoints him. And the Father speaks concerning him. This is my son. This is a moment of seeing, of everybody going, oh, who knew the carpenter's son from Galilee, this man who looks like the rest of us, this man we would not have recognized as the king or the promised one, here he is. And what's happening in this moment in this baptism is that God is making himself known. How? Well, the first thing we realize here is that God is making himself known in saving humility. You know, when people start talking about what God is like, the attributes of God, humility is usually not one of the first things that comes to people's minds. They might talk about God being almighty, God's power, God's sovereignty, and all of those are true. But I want you to consider for just a moment the humility of God. Jesus is God the Son, and he leaves the high throne of heaven itself, and he descends, he comes down. Paul wrote to the Philippians and said, even though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be held onto or grasped, but he, he emptied himself. And he took on the form of a man, and he was conformed as a servant to death, even death on a cross. He becomes a servant. In this passage, the one who is at the Father's right hand, the high king of heaven, comes to John the Baptist, who is out in the wilderness of Judea at the Jordan River, the Jordan Valley. It's the lowest 
place geographically on planet Earth. The high king of heaven comes to the lowest place on the planet to be introduced as the Messiah before all people. You'd have thought perhaps, well, he would be introduced in the temple. He'd be introduced in the palaces of Rome. Kings would be lined up before him. Here's the one. But no, he comes, and he not only comes to the lowest place on the planet, the most lowly place, he comes and he does not turn around and say to everybody, I don't really need this baptism, I'm just doing it. Why would he not need baptism? Why would John say, I, you don't need baptism? Because Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And he arrives on the scene as sinless, the sinless Son of God. What was John's baptism about? Well, John's baptism, we looked at it last week, was about cleansing. Jesus has no sin from which to be cleansed. You come to me for baptism? John says to him, I need to be baptized by you. You're the perfect one. The water does not cleanse Jesus. What's going on? Jesus steps into the water and identifies with all of these people that are gathered there, all of these people who have all of their sin, low and high, common everyday people and workers, as well as Sadducees and Pharisees. He identifies with everyone's sins. He identifies with us in our sin. But more than that, the water does not cleanse him. My friends, when Jesus steps into the water, he begins to cleanse the water. He begins to cleanse the world. The Holy One steps into the unholy, and he begins to change it. So now, when lepers, unclean, that everybody turns away from, when he touches them, he does not, he does not become unholy. They are healed. When Jesus touches the unholy, the unholy become holy. When Jesus touches the unclean, they become clean. Jesus identifies with us in our sin, and he steps into our fallenness, our brokenness. He steps into the disaster that we have made. He does not stand far off saying, I wish you guys would get it together. He enters into our disaster, and he owns it. He makes it his own, and he says, now I am healing you. I am making you new. The humility of God is such that he steps into our fall, which is deep. How deep is our fall? How far? I have fallen and I can't get up. How far down are we? You only begin to realize how far down you've fallen when you really get serious about rising up. And you begin to look at the state of your heart. You begin to look at the attitudes. You begin to look at the practices of your life. You begin to see the zoo of lusts and envy and greed and fear and anxieties. All of these things bubbling up within you. Sin is like an onion. It's layer after layer. And when you deal with it, you will cry. And you just keep going deeper. You go, I had no idea this was so deep. But Jesus comes and he steps into the depths of our fall. He's immersed in it at the lowest part of our life. Where does Jesus meet us? Does he say to us, if you would, if you would just take the first step towards me, I will meet you halfway? No. Jesus takes every step needed and meets us in the depths of our fall. He steps into our disaster. 
He is the humble God, the humble king, who then embraces us in our brokenness and heals us and makes us whole, and he's doing this for the whole world. Here's the second thing. We not only see the saving humility of God, we see the Trinitarian glory of God. You go, the Trinity, where's the Trinity here? Well, remember that heaven being rent? Who shows up? The Spirit in the form of a dove. So God the Son is standing in the water, and God the Spirit is descending upon him and coming to rest upon him. And then there's a voice, the voice of the Father that says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And one of the things that's taking place here is that God, who at the very, very beginning of the Bible says, let us make man in our image, the one God in three persons is showing himself to the whole world. The voice of the Father, the descent of the Spirit, and the presence of the Son. This is why whenever Christians are baptized, they're baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, if I began to tell you, if I began, you say, well, what difference does that really make? Here's the difference. If I began to tell you the story of water and something's being in the water and a dove descending upon that thing that's sticking out of the water, you'd say, oh, yeah, I know that story. That's the story of the flood and Noah. He sent a dove out until it found a resting place. It would go out and come back and go out and come back until it found a resting place. And that's when Noah and everybody in the ark knew that the waters were dissipating from the earth and the world was beginning again. Look what it says in this text. The dove descended and rested upon him. That's the same language as that story in Genesis. Matthew, remember, is a Jewish writer. He's writing for Jewish people. They know that story. And he's pointing out to them what's happening with Jesus is what happened with Noah he has entered into the judgment, and now he's the tree of life, and the Spirit is resting upon him, and the world is beginning again. And that's why if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. Your world is beginning again. When God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit determined to save the world, they did that not thinking we're just going to rescue a few people here and there. They came to gather a people unto Jesus through the Holy Spirit and save every aspect of creation. The blood of Christ is strong enough to not only forgive every one of our sins, but to restore the whole of creation. And if you are in Christ, it's not only your life that's been made new, but you are part of this wonderful community of the Trinity. The Spirit has brought you into fellowship with the Father and the Son, and the Spirit, and you are now part of the new creation that God is making. Your world has started all over again in Jesus. When He comes, our world begins again. Why? It's this last point, the unchanging mercy of God. The unchanging mercy of God. You know, the Scriptures say, that the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. How beautiful is that? Great is your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. But I want you to notice something in this text. Jesus comes not only from heaven to Jordan, he comes from Galilee. And he comes to John. And he says, John, 
I want you to baptize me. And I want you to notice what John said. John said, you come to me? I need to be baptized by you. I need to be baptized by you. Jesus, I need you to baptize me. Who was John? Who was John? Let me remind you. Jesus said of John, he's the greatest person ever born of woman. Until the kingdom comes, he's the greatest person ever born of woman. I want you to think about this man for just a moment. He's a prophet sent from God. He's got a word from God. He's the one who is Elijah to come. He's he's the greatest human on the earth, the greatest mere man who's ever lived. And I don't know where you put yourself on the spirituality scale this morning. I want you to think about where you are in relationship to John for just a second. Where would you put yourself? Here's a man who's a prophet sent from God, who has got this holy lifestyle out in the wilderness, who is the greatest person ever in history, greater than anyone, and the greatest person ever born, says to Jesus, I need you to baptize me. Now, if John, a prophet, a holy man, the greatest person who ever lived, if that person says, Jesus, I need you to cleanse me, I need you to baptize me, then who among us can say to Jesus this morning, I don't need you to cleanse me, I'm fine. No one can. No one can. I can't. You can't. No one here this morning, no one watching online can say to Christ, I don't need you. If the greatest person who ever lived said, Jesus, I need you to cleanse me, then every person in this room needs to be able to look at Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you to baptize me. How can any of us still sit in our seats and say, oh, I don't think baptism is all that consequential. I don't think I need Christian baptism. Why do I need to be a disciple? Uh, Why do I need the blood of Jesus? You see, that indwelling sin is deep within us, and it'll lie to us, it'll deceive us. But the greatest person who ever lived said, Jesus, I need you to cleanse me. Two of Jesus' disciples sent their mother to him. (laughs) And they said to Jesus, through their mom. She said, I want Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, I want my two boys to sit on thrones next to you. One on the right and one on the left. And Jesus, that was one of those face palm moments for Jesus, right? You know, really? Really? So he called, it was James and John. He calls James and John. He goes, hey, hey, really? Can I ask you a question? Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink. You drank a cup this morning. Paul calls it the cup of blessing. Why is it the cup of blessing? Because Jesus drank the cup of wrath for you. He did it at the cross. And then he asked him a second question. Are you able to drink the cup I'm going to drink? And then he asked him a second question. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I am about to undergo? 
the cup of wrath and the immersion that Jesus was about to undergo was the cross. And what he did that day with John the Baptist to, as he says, fulfill all righteousness, was extended out over time to a cross on a hill and just outside Jerusalem. And the Spirit who descended upon him was breathed out by him. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he died. He died. And he died for us to cleanse us. And that's what baptism signifies to us. And it doesn't matter whether you get baptized in an ocean or a bowl of water is poured over you or water is sprinkled on you. The water represents the blood. How much blood of the Savior does it take to cleanse you? Does it take an ocean? Does it take a drop? I'm telling you, whether you're sprinkled or poured or immersed, and some of you have been baptized six times, it's the first one that took, no matter how many times. I want you to know when you were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Father said from heaven when he sent his Spirit, you're my beloved, you're mine. And that little drop of water signified to you that one drop of the blood of Jesus was enough to cleanse you from all your sin and remake your heart and renew and recreate your world and make you part of the kingdom of God, deliver you from the domain of darkness and make you a citizen of heaven, not only for when you die, but while you live here. The blood of Jesus is enough. What can wash away my sin? Nothing, nothing. Let the emphasis be there for just a minute. What can wash away my sin? Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. One drop is enough to cleanse the cosmos. And it's enough for you and me to be healed. And so my friend this morning when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, He completed that journey of baptism at the cross, and he died, and he rose for you. And no one in this room, no one in this room, if the President of the United States was sitting in this room, if Catherine the Great or Alexander the Great, Peter the Great, any great was sitting in this room, I don't care how great they were, sitting in this room, I would say to every single one of them, no matter how great, if if a wealthy, if Bill Gates and Elon Musk were sitting together, On the front row, I would say, who are you? Who are you? No one can say to Jesus, I don't need you. If John said, I need you to cleanse me, then every single one of us need to say to Jesus, I need you to cleanse me. If you've never given your life to Christ, you need to. And if you've never been baptized, you should be. What are you waiting for? What are you, what are you waiting for? Don't wait. Be baptized. Arise. Become a follower of Jesus. What are you waiting for? Because only the blood of Jesus can take away your sin. Amen? Praise God. My, my, my. Let's pray together. Lord. We want to be your disciples. Thank you for your 
divine humility. Thank you for your Trinitarian glory. Thank you for your remarkable mercy, your saving mercy. Thank you for one drop of your precious blood being enough to save us. And I pray for those among us today who haven't yet come to know you, that you would bring them from death to life. I pray for those who have resisted the idea of baptizing, being baptized, that you would bring us all to that humble place of saying, well, John, I need you to baptize me. I need to be cleansed. And I pray that for each of us, the life of Christ would be formed in us, that you would deliver us from cultural consumer Christianity and turn us into resilient followers of Jesus Christ. And this we pray in your mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.